that went in a number of different directions, didn't it? Two for the price of one. Yeah, I might go make a cup of coffee first, though. Yeah, I'll make another decaf, and then we'll yeah. we'll do another one. Right then. Let's go. Let's go. I'm Andy. And I'm Rod. And what are we talking about this week, Rod? We're, we're talking about history. Now, Ooh. wait a minute. Bear with us here, folks. We're not going down a history podcast route no. here. We're not going to start talking about the Tudors and the Stuarts and the Industrial Revolution and all of that. I knew someone called Stuart once. Was his name Stuart Tudor? Yeah. Well, there you are then, you see. We're going to talk about him. No, we're talking about... Remembering history and how history changes when it's gone through the lens of whoever is remembering it. And, and this is important because a big part of, of healthcare disciplines is taking history from patients. Yeah. So we wanted to, 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 to think about this a little bit, didn't we? Yeah, and it, it's, it was prompted by some topical comments and people choosing to rewrite history and people choosing to have selective memory. And it, it just, for me, it certainly highlighted how much, as you say, there is that that lens of, for want of a better way of putting it, the spin the individual wants to put on it, who mm. is written by the victors. Um, and it did make me wonder how much that influences the, the way we treat people in health, um, because the history and symptoms is the foundation of everything we do. In mm. Depending on which, which model you look at, when you, you consider the history and symptoms, it is either where you as the healthcare professional gather information or where the patient presents their problem. Um, and there, there are two different views. There's the paternalistic and the patient-centered view. Um, and we are leaning a lot more to the patient-centered, but there is still very much a, a paternalistic attitude with it. Mm. Um, but it, it, it's where we explore what needs doing, what outcomes patients actually want. Um, and if we are viewing it through our own lens, how much do we distort that? Yeah, and, and we've also got to think about the patient's view and the patient's lens, and, and the patients will distort what they are telling us for whatever reason. And then, and then if we are distorting it as healthcare professionals, it's a distortion of a distortion. Mm. Um, and, I, and I'm uh, reminded of a a time this was years ago uh, on some someone was being interviewed on television about how they'd gone through an eye operation and he described it as they took my eye out and they laid it on my cheek and I was watching this with with an optometrist relative um who as we might expect, when that's impossible, that's really stupid. What the stupid man, what is he talking about? But that was his experience, and that was how he chose to interpret that experience. And obviously, we know they didn't physically remove his eye and lay it on his cheek. They laid something else on his cheek, and he thought it was his eye. But that was his, his view of it. And then that went through the lens of the optometrist, who then changed it and sort of discounted 
his view and almost invalidated it, not intentionally, but ended up invalidating it. And I think that is the danger we've got of not being aware of the lens of which we, we, we view what's happened. Yeah, we, we, we're very strong on considering filters and filtering out what is important. Um, and, and the unsaid of that is discarding what we consider to be not important. Um, and that, that what we consider not important is often the most important thing for the patient. Mm. Um, there is the element of patients need to feel listened to, they need to feel validated, they need to have their views validated. They, they may have views that we, we actually know are medically impossible, such as taking your eye out and laying it on your cheek, but that is their viewpoint. Um, and as soon as we, we rubbish that in whatever way, by ignoring it, by, by actually saying, no, that couldn't have happened, we challenge how we stand to that that patient we we challenge mm-hmm. the way they they feel we're dealing with their information their problems and them as a whole um, mm. so I, I think it's important that we are aware of what we discard as much as what what we put in um there's an element of we we all create narratives as well um, mm. and we tend to be the star of our own narrative or we tend to have a, a fairly leading role in our own narrative um so there's also that distortion when we are creating our narrative that we we give to the medical professional we we have narrative structure we we all talk in a, a narrative structure it, it it's part of human connect, communication yeah and and the, the the key thing about making yourself the hit the hero in your own story is that everything becomes exaggerated the the positives become super positive and the negatives become super negative and i think we've all had the time where we've we've lain awake at night thinking of all the bad things we've done and going oh god those people must really hate me for doing whatever it was we did and they've not thought about us ever since it happened um because we don't matter to them but in our story we matter we have we have to be important um, and that could almost create a clash in a diagnostic environment. And then you've got two people who have to be the hero of their own story. And they then need to work together to build this diagnosis and to build a successful treatment plan. And so as healthcare professionals, you have to be aware of that. And and I think this is all we're going to be able to, this is all we can say all the way throughout. We're not going to have a magic bullet. We're not going to be able to say, this is how you stop rewriting history and, and everything is golden and everything is absolutely perfect. No, we're just saying build your awareness. Yeah. And that's, and that's the only thing really you can do. And it's the most effective thing you can do. Hey, when, we, when we considered talking about this, we were both quite keen because it, it is such a big thing. I thought we were going to possibly actually talk of some historical examples. We were going to be um, Judas and Stuarts. Um, and I'm, I'm struggling to think of historical examples where we've rewritten history. I mean, I'll, we, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm attempting not to go back to decolonization because we... 
Well, I think I think we we, time, but I think I think think we we may have to. I think I think we we talk a lot about, you know, I can't think of anyone, but we might talk about war is a really good example. You might talk about that the people on our side were amazing and were were true heroes, and the people on the other side were horrible war criminals doing really nasty things, and. On some levels, that is that is the case. But on other levels, we were just as bad as the other side were. Um, if you think about World War Two, the the Nazis were rounding up people and putting them in internment camps. So were we. We were just were doing it for a di- completely different reason. Um, yeah, and in terms of civilians killed, the the British bombers killed more than the the German bombers. Mm. Um, but again, that that comes down to the black and whiteness of constructing your own personal narrative. Um, we construct the narrative as winners and losers because we have to justify to ourselves collectively as a country, as a culture, we have to justify going to war. So there has to be a winner. Mm. But the reality in any war, there's losers and losers. Any person that loses their life is one person too many. Mm. No side can actually win in a war situation. Yet we we construct these narratives to justify our actions. And that is a collective construction. Um, and, and that is, I think, some of the struggles we've got with even recognising colonialism, because it is a constructed narrative that as a culture, as a community, as a country, we have inherited for all these hundreds of years and it has been Mm. black and white as someone who grew up in the northwest of england i was very conscious that english history is history of the southeast um it must be even more so for people from scotland and wales it is very much the history of the southeast of england Um, yeah i mean we did kings and queens we didn't do you know or anything like that. I mean, we did the Industrial Revolution, which was very whale-centric in terms of Merthyr, um, but everything else was just far away, far outside that, and didn't have any particular resonance. And I think we, we, we're too quick to overlook the fact that history is cultural. And that's why with... The, the Black Lives Matter and the tearing down of the, the, the statues of people like Colston in, in Bristol and Cecil Rhodes, wherever he's in Cambridge or Oxford, one of the two, um, is that from the, the, the point of view of the people that put up the statues, they were heroes, they were to be celebrated. To a completely different culture, they were villains. And I think it's a real positive that we are, are now building enough cultural awareness to accept that they were fairly villainous and that that while they may have done good stuff, the villainous stuff they did was fairly heinous. Was, was Actually, I'm not even going to mince my words. It was so heinous. It, they, they deserve not to be celebrated, but they still need to be in the history books. Yeah, there's, there's the controversy about the um, Jimmy Savile dramatisation. Mm. Um, and again, there's the element of if we don't have history, we can't learn from history and we can't airbrush out 
unpleasant history because we all feel complicit within it. Um, probably many of our listeners weren't alive when Jimmy Savile was, was in his heyday, but Jimmy Savile was a national treasure, quote unquote. Um, and he is now slowly being airbrushed from our cultural history, as in media culture, popular culture. Mm. Um, and there's great controversy about the fact that Steve Coogan is relishing his role as Jimmy Savile, yet how are we ever going to learn from those lessons if we don't even know they exist? Um, I think this is some of the argument with decolonization. Um, we, we need to apologise. We, we need mm. to take collective responsibility for it. We are not shying away from that. But we also need to learn those lessons. and. It, it, it's I, I don't have the language to explain it the way I want to. This, this is the problem again, and this is something else. We are creating language. Decolonization mm. is not a word that existed just a few years ago. That there's an element of our language evolves to deal with our evolving history, our evolving narrative. Um, yeah. Um, and we've, we've, we, it is, what am I, what am I trying to, I'm trying to sort of to hook it back into, into, into healthcare as well. And, and, and the ongoing push to, to decolonize healthcare and how you are taught healthcare from a particular point of view. And, and that, I'm not saying that is necessarily a bad thing. It's just the way it's always been done. You, you were taught healthcare from the point of view of here are what the majority of your, pa your patients are going to look like because that's the culture that you were being trained in. So yeah. the majority um, of your patients are going to be Caucasian and they are, they, they are going to be working or, or middle class. We are not teaching people to test royalty. For, as, you know, as an extreme example, um, I was going to say there's all, also the the that drugs good, acupuncture bad. There's that whole alternative medicine, um, mm. and there's great tranches of alternative medicine medicine that quite rightly um, thrashed. Yeah, but. The, the actual the we, we talk regularly about skin on skin contact because we, we talk about contact with um, isolated individuals mm. uh, and it, it's something to be aware of as a healthcare professional you may be the only person that has skin on skin contact with an individual for a week for a month even um, and, and we've all heard stories of those those people that have, have done those sorts of house visits or had patients come in but you can't belittle the the healing properties of that that human touch mm. of that physical contact of just being made a fuss of so you you could argue things like reiki healing things like reflexology have a place within the pantheon of healing you you can start to look at spiritual healing we, we're very conscious of mental health issues of mindfulness mm. of things that again in the past the the very paternalistic the very colonial medical training would just a poo-pooed mm. it doesn't involve a physiological process it doesn't involve 
a drug, a chemical, a hormone, therefore it is not health related. Yeah, so 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 part of decolonization is moving away from that science is the be all and end all um point of view. And the placebo effect is a really good example of that. We don't really know why the placebo effect works. We just know that it we just know that it does. If you think that something is going to help, then there will be a measurable physiological effect. And, you know, this relates to giving someone a, a, a pill that does nothing but looks like a proper medication all the way down to what color the waiting room is. Lots of um, varieties of, of the placebo effect. And that really is us kind of waving our hands and saying it's the power of belief that works. That's fairly spiritual. But, yeah. but it works. But, but the placebo effect is accepted so there are boundaries in science where where this decolonization in terms of moving towards a more spiritual way of thinking is happening i i, I mean to give you a, an anecdotal view on the placebo effect i i take vitamin d and um, because i'm conscious i do a job that means i i don't see much sunshine during the winter months um I cannot point to any indication where or any specific thing that makes me feel better for taking it. I can't say I now perform this better. I'm I'm less cranky. My I've got a glossy coat and um, a healthy smile any more than when I used to take it. But it makes me feel better. And that is whether that's placebo, whether that's actual, I don't care. I feel better as a result of taking this little white tablet, which could be purely placebo um so as a, my intellectual stance on that is i don't care if it's placebo effect i feel better for it mm. um, so yeah there is definitely a place for things like that it, it, i was gonna say it blurs the lines between health and social care an awful lot as well if we we start looking at this yeah and, and I, I think I realise I, I st I've started nearly every sentence I've said with I think today. There you go. We are becoming more and more aware of the, of the impact of social care and the, and the holistic approach to, 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 to medicine. So we are moving away from the history of healthcare in terms of you have to physically do something to somebody to, hmm. to, to cure them trepanation for example if someone's having some sort of mental health issue oh i know what we'll do we'll drill a hole in their brain and let the demons out it's such a shame we weren't recording when we had that conversation wasn't it it is <laughs> um, revisit that one later <laughs> um yeah so you 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 drill into someone's head and you you let the let the demons out what in reality you're doing is you're releasing the pressure on the skull and it works in, in, for certain and certain conditions there's a short-term oxygen hit as well yeah more oxygen to the the brain but that 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 work really well um but and we're moving more away from that more into 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 a, into a spiritual way of way of thinking if you like but we're not rewriting history we're not saying trepanation never existed we're not saying nobody ever 
drilled a hole in someone's skull, we're saying, look at that as an example of how far we've come. So we, we, we're using that as a learning lesson. But then again, is that not, the fact we're describing as look as how far we've come, is that not a colonial attitude of the savage native compared to the sophisticated northern hemisphere white middle-aged bloke? Yes, it is. You're absolutely right. There's, I mean, I, I'm thinking now that there's there's evidence of Neanderthals practicing some form of trepanation. The, the, you know, they, they found skulls with holes in them that have healed over. So clearly there was something going on there. Um, that is often, or that can be used as an argument for, look, how, look, look how far we've come, look how savage these people were, because Neanderthals were doing it. And, oh, look, people in, you know... I, you know, you have to say more primitive cultures, but primitive by whose standards? But there you go. Yeah. Um, are still doing it, but, but it works yeah. for them. And is it primitive? Do they worry about how long they're spending on a screen, how much exposure they've got to blue light? Are they worrying about the increasing utility bills? How are they going to pay that? Um, getting their kids into good schools? They we. I've had this argument a lot of the patients I see with, with learning disabilities. They have a fantastic quality of life mm. because they, they don't worry about things. Um, and and this, is, this is one of the joys of working with that patient group. They, they have very few worries about the things that we worry about. And it, it, it's very liberating. Um, and I've lost the thread of where I was going with that. Well, but, you know, picking yeah, up on that. that Northern Hemisphere viewpoint, I think, for, yeah, for, for and, problems. And we have, the, we have the viewpoint of going, oh, look at the little, the little Downs man, which is one of the most offensive things you can say to anybody. Um, oh, look at him. Isn't he cute? I don't want to talk to him. Um, as a way of sort of, again, colonialising and saying we are better than you because we have... Well, because we don't have a learning disability. Yeah, but look at all the other stuff you've got. You've got to worry about house prices and mortgages and all of this sort of stuff. And then, you you know, you are one step away from looking over the ocean and going, look at those South Sea Islanders not wearing clothes. Oh, my goodness, how much better am I than them? You're warmer, possibly, than they would be in the same location. But... Yeah, what what, what springs to mind, and, and to those of you that are aware of Douglas Adams, is so long and thanks for all the fish. Let's all be dolphins. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, dolphins one of the most uh, one of the uh, most uh, disturbing animals in the sea with their proclivity for uh, sexual activity. But there you go. He says, taking a long drink. Yeah. <laughs> That killed that conversation. I did. We might have to cut that bit out. Um... Yeah, so going back, back to patient histories, which I think is, is the point we were going to make. We, yeah, drawing us said, back to where we started. Yeah, we, we more or less said we need to embrace the patient narrative and what, what's the word I'm looking for? We need, we need to validate patient narrative. Um, mm. And that is... And that gets to the heart of communication in the healthcare setting, because communication 
is a dialogue between two people to build um, shared understanding. And to do that, you need to be aware of the, the patient experience, the patient's history, or, or to put it a slightly better way, to be aware of the patient's view of their history. Mm. Because I, one thing we, we, we've not touched on, although we've, we've not explicitly touched on, but I think we, 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 we've suggested it, is that there is an emotion associated with, with history as well. So you, yeah. you, you have patients whose experience of healthcare is colored by the emotions they used to, they, they've experienced as well. And that can change how they then communicate that history to you. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm scratching. I, I seem to think there was a study done that showed that emotional state affected efficacy of drug treatment. And I may well be making that one up. It certainly affects the, the placebo effect, going back to the placebo effect, in that patients that are more neurotic, that are, that are higher levels of anxiety, um, higher levels of um, mood, mood swings, um, are less likely to experience a, a, a well, not less likely to experience a placebo effect. They still experience a placebo effect, but it's a much weaker effect than someone that isn't as neurotic. So, yeah, there is, there is a, an interaction there between efficacy of healthcare and a patient's emotional state, which is why we, we encourage um, you to think about how safe your environment is how relaxed your environment is what you can do to reduce the stress of the patient yeah and, and by safe we're meaning safe space as well aren't we mm. that the, the encounter occurs within a a safe space a confidential space um a non-judgmental space um yeah the, I mean, the bottom line is we don't own the patient narrative. The patient owns their own narrative. They own their own history. Um, and they've come to see us because they want an outcome. Mm. And they may want a particular outcome, but most of the time they are happy with an outcome. They, they, want, they want to complete the narrative loop. Mm. Um, so... We feel that patients that come in with wanting a particular outcome, we, they're very much those patients that we consider as coming in with an agenda. Mm. Again, that is us rewriting their history. No, they 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 have a preferred outcome, um, but a lot of the time they want an outcome, um, and the outcome to us may not be the most pleasant. We we all know patients who've spent long enough on this earth um that their circumstances are such that their preferred outcome is is to no longer be here mm. um and medically we we do our best to preserve their time here but again we are then ignoring their mm. their heroic nature within their own narrative yeah and and it's not it's not our place to dictate what they what their wants should be. It's up to to them to do, to um, to understand and, and and dictate what what their wants 
should be. And I think the turning point in a lot of professionals' development is that point where you realise that you cannot um, force your own agenda onto your patients. And I don't think that's an easy thing to realise. Mm. But I, can, I also think that can be a very liberating thing to realise. Yeah. And it, again, I, something else that we've looked at in the past is compliance. Um, and the mere concept of compliance is a very colonial attitude. You will do as I tell you. Um, and if you look at health psychology, they, they talk about um, modified compliance. Mm. Patients comply in a way that fits in with their lifestyle. Well, that, that to the patient, that isn't the modified compliance. That is actually compliance. But to the healthcare professional, they are divergent things. Um, and it, it can be one of the issues with real life treatments diverging from the, the success rate, the study results that you get within controlled studies. The patients that volunteer for controlled studies stick to the timetable. They take their drugs at the times they're supposed to. They, they record exactly what they're doing. They're motivated to do that for a plethora of reasons. Yet when we get out into the real world, I need to take um, a blood test at eight o'clock. But actually, socially, that's not acceptable. I'm out with my friends. I'm in a busy public space. I'm not going to take my blood test, so I'll miss it today. That, that, that is non-compliant attitude. But that's real life. Mm. Um, and again, having this, this attitude that you have done wrong, you have not complied, therefore it's your own fault, you've not responded to treatment is... Is a very poor attitude from a health professional, really, isn't it? Mm. But I wonder how much of that is is endemic of the way health professionals are trained. And I'm and, and I'm not in any way saying this is a flaw in the way we train them. It's just the way we have to train them. We have to train you in a bubble. We have yeah. to train you in a a disconnect from patient patient practice because you are not safe to go into patient practice until you've completed a certain level of training so so you are trained in a patient x comes in and this is how you deal with patient x because you need to learn the basics you need to learn the procedures and everything and you, you need to know the rules before you can before you can break the rules and it's and for a lot of people it's not until they get out into the into the into the real world into practice that they realize that the real world is messy it is not pleasant it doesn't play by the rules you've been taught by that is not a flaw of the way you were taught but it is a consequence of the way you were taught mm. so again to go back to our original conceit of can you rewrite history you're almost saying that we haven't given our students the tools to understand history. Yeah, I think so. I, and I think that's because we can't give our students the mm. tools to understand history because of the nature of, 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 of the education. And 
maybe one of the futures of healthcare education is a way of integrating that. And I think moving towards using a lot of placements and things like that may well help to address some of that. But yeah, I, I, I think it is, I'm, I'm hesitant to say a lack of it because that suggests there is a flaw and that it's something we should be doing. It's something at the moment under the current system we can't do. No. So this is maybe like, you know, one of, one of the ways forward we will see more of this integrating of, and we are seeing more of this integration of real life experience, real life practice coming into healthcare disciplines. Um, and I think that's a, that's, a, that's a positive thing. We're talking about reflection again, really. We are talking about reflection. Of course we are. We could have gone on reflection 20 minutes ago, to be fair. Very easily. Yes, because it's all about reflection. Yeah, th this has given me stuff. plenty to think about. I, I think we um, we perhaps need to wrap this up at this point because there's an awful lot to listen back to. There's a lot to listen back to. There's a lot to unpack here. Yeah. And I, and I hope our listeners get something something out of yeah. it, even if it's just... Because we, we, we do these podcasts partially for ourselves, because Andy and I like the sound of our own voices, and we like to talk about this sort of... And we sort do of, actually listen to them. We do listen <laughs> to them, yeah, we, we do. Um, but also, we want to get you guys that are listening thinking about these sorts yeah. of things. So that's why we don't present answers. No. And this is also why we don't tackle questions where there are set answers. We just like to chew it over and, and unpack this idea. So I think there's plenty for people to think about here. Yeah. And let us know what you think. Yeah, please do. Be really yeah. interesting. So goodbye from me. And goodbye from him. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs>